Hey, don't we need to do the intro to Papa's podcast? Oh yeah, I forgot. Isn't that the boring one? No, that's the theology one. It's the boring theology podcast. <laughs> that's so stupid. Welcome to the Boring Theology Podcast, where we will be digging our way through the Bible from a Reformed confessional perspective. I'm your host, Michael Esch. Welcome back. We're going to be getting into the eighth installment of the Bible Timeline series. If you have been with us so far, congratulations. (laughs) I am impressed. We have um, so far covered everything from creation, the patriarchs, uh, Egypt, the Exodus, uh, during the time of Canaan with the judges, and then the early kings and the divided kingdom was the last episode. We've covered a lot of material in just a little bit of time. considering the amount of material that we've covered. Um, and, and so far, I feel like every podcast that we've had on the Bible Timeline series has ended on a sour note. <laughs> the first podcast, the beginnings podcast, we ended on the fall of man. That man became totally depraved. In the patriarchs, we ended on a famine that brought the patriarchs or Israel into Egypt, and then they became slaves. Um, In the Exodus episode, we talked about the Israelites um, leaving Egypt, which was a good thing, but then the whole episode we kept talking about how they were rebelling and they rebelled so much that God didn't allow that generation to enter into the promised land, that that whole generation would have to die out before they could enter into the promised land. And then we had uh, the Canaan and judges episode, and that one ended on a particularly dark note um, where I, I had to, I feel like I had to give a trigger warning um, because it was such a uh, an uncomfortable story, um, and then and then with that bloody battle, um, and then in the early kings episode we ended with Solomon falling into idolatry, and that that God did offer him mercy because he was David's son, but he told Solomon that his generation or his son's generation would see a divided kingdom. And then in the divided kingdom episode, we ended with uh, the kings and the people rebelling so much that God exiles them, Israel or the northern kingdom forever, and Judah um, for a time. And I feel like all of those episodes were ended on really dark notes. We had we had some really good things that happened in there. Um, we see that God has a lot of mercy for man, that God exacts justice on, on evildoers. 
Uh, and these are good things that we could celebrate, but there seems to be this darkness that overcasts a lot of these stories. And this one, I feel like ends with like this bursting of light at the end of its episode. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, the title of this episode is The Prophet's Exile and Return. And in this episode, we will be covering the time period of the prophets through the divided kingdom and into the exile and finally when Israel returns. But before we jump into that story, we need to define what a prophet is. A prophet is someone that spoke for God. Uh, he's a, or she, is a proclaimer of God's will. In 1 Samuel, we read that the prophets were also called seers uh, during uh, the time of the judges because they could see spiritually speaking what God wanted. In the Bible, the frequent phrase we hear from the prophets is, thus says the Lord. Now, you'd be careful when, you, when you're reading through your Bible and you see, thus says the Lord, because most of the time it is what God has spoken to that prophet to speak, but occasionally it will be a false prophet giving a false prophecy. The way you can differentiate between a true prophet and a false prophet in the Bible is just by simply reading the context. Uh, the Bible, the authors of the Bible and the Holy Spirit inspiring them gives very clear directives on who is a true prophet and who is not a true prophet. And even in, in the book of uh, Moses' law, it, it shows us how to distinguish a true prophet from a false prophet. And that is predominantly a, a prophet will... Um, be directing people to obey, to repent, and to follow God. And false prophets would lead Israel astray, and they would teach them to distrust God or not have faith in God or to disobey God's law and to worship idols. Sometimes God even says that he would send a false prophet to perform miracles. These false prophets would perform real miracles. And that it would be God testing his people to see if these miraculous events that happen would be enough to lead them astray and to lead them into sinfulness. And these were tests, just like God tested Abraham when he uh, commanded him to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, the, these are tests. And the Bible even says that Jesus was tested and he was, Satan brought forth all of these different types of tests to Jesus. And he, of course, passes all of them. And, but, but that is the determination of a false prophet and a true prophet is, do they lead you to follow the one true God and to worship him as he is prescribed in scripture? Or do they lead you to worship God in other ways that are not prescribed by scripture? And do they lead you to sin and rebellion and wickedness? In So, so I said all that just to, to say, when you see thus says the Lord, 
just look in the context of what you're reading and you'll be able to determine, is this a uh, true prophet of God or is this a false prophet? In the Old Testament, we have 53 prophets and we've actually covered a lot of them in the Bible Timeline series. Um, because remember, a prophet is anyone who spoke for God. So we have, we covered Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua. And in the times of the judges, we had Deborah, Gideon, and Samuel. And then King Saul and King David um, both spoke for God. Uh, God directly spoke to them, and then they told the people what God had spoken. Um, that would be that would fit that definition of what a prophet is. Uh, along with uh, Nathan, who was the prophet that confronted David with his sin with Bathsheba, um, all of these individuals directly told the people what God had spoken to them. They would say, thus says the Lord. There were others in the Bible during the time that aren't named. We have prophets like in 1 Samuel 10.10, where it talks about there being many unnamed prophets, um, just people that had gathered together um, and were prof- uh, they were prophesying. But we don't have a direct... Um, We don't have any names for them. Now, being a Bible timeline series, we're not going to be focusing on all of the prophets of the Old Testament um, because we're trying to go along the timeline of the Bible. And in the last episode, we were in the divided kingdom and we're going into the exile. So what we're going to do is talk about the prophets during the divided kingdom as they were prophesying about the exile, then the prophets during the exile, or even the overlaps here, and then the prophets during the return. Um, and these these prophets are going to be primarily focused on calling Israel to repentance. They're going to be prophesying about the exile the and the return to uh, in specifically when they're speaking about Judah or the Southern kingdom, they're going to be prophesying about the return. And then they also will be talking about the new covenant, which we will be covering in uh, another episode in, in this Bible timeline series. But that will be after that will be with Jesus and the early church and the church today throughout that time, uh, throughout those episodes, we'll be working out what the new covenant is and how it fits into the covenant of grace. Now, when we look at the, the prophets, we have 50 something prophets that are named in the Bible, but then we only have a few that actually wrote books of the Bible. Uh, this section of our Bibles, which if you if you have a modern day Bible, like just a normal Bible, not like a chronological Bible or some type of special, unique Bible, most of our Bibles organize the Old Testament into the law, the history, some writings, um, where we would have like Psalms and Job and 
Proverbs and Song of Solomon, uh, those, and then it and then it has the prophets on the end. Now, these prophets are divided into two categories. There are major prophets and minor prophets. Um, that doesn't mean anything other than the the length of the book that they wrote. So a major prophet would be one who wrote a large book. And then a minor prophet would be a short book. Some of these short books are a page long. Some of them are a couple pages. But the larger ones are like 50 chapters. Um, so uh, examples, or actually I'm going to go through all of them. But <laughs> the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The minor prophets are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, now that's how we order our we order our um, modern Bibles with all of the prophets there at the end of our Old Testament. But in the ancient Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the books of the Bible were grouped slightly differently. They had the minor prophets all combined into one book. And Lamentations and Daniel weren't considered prophets. They were considered writings. Um, the Hebrew scriptures actually have just three categories. They have instructions, prophets, and writings. The Hebrew word for the summary of those three um, subjects or content areas of the Old Testament, or the way that it's it's categorized, the Hebrew word is Tanakh. And if you're interested in learning more about Tanakh, um, you can request or ask a question. You can just submit that on like social media, uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I I have a group on Reddit. It's on the website. If you go to the website, you can see all the social media links at the top. And the the website is live. I think this might be the first podcast we've posted with a live website. Um, if you go to boringtheology.com, you can see all the links, all the episodes, and any of the blog articles I've posted. Anyways, let's get back to the prophets. Um, in the last episode, when we were covering the divided kingdoms, we said that there was about 20 kings in Judah and 20 kings in Israel. We weren't able to cover all of the significant players in the Bible, and this episode is going to be very similar. We're not going to be able to cover all of the different prophets, um, and I would consider all any prophet in the Bible to be a major player because they are these are individuals that spoke for God. They spoke God's inerrant word, and that is significant. But in this series, we're primarily focused on an aerial view of the biblical story. So what we're going to do is we're just going to be talking about the prophets associated with the stories that we've either mentioned earlier 
or that go along with Israel being exiled and then their return. So we've already covered Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Samuel as prophets so far in this series. So I'd like to start with the prophets during the divided kingdom. But I would like to note, if you're interested in learning about a prophet that we don't get to, or one that I barely cover in the series, please message in and maybe we can cover, I can give them a whole podcast or I could just answer them on my question and answer podcast. Um, The next podcast that's coming out is going to be a question and answer one. So if you get this, if you send in your question soon, it, it will most likely be answered on that podcast. Anyways, (laughs) Anyways, <laughs> let's just jump right into these these prophets. Um, so let's start with Elijah. Elijah is the prophet during the divided kingdom. He's predominantly dealing with King Ahab, which was the king that was married to Jezebel. And we talked about them in the last episode. Elijah shows up in 1 Kings 17. Now, Right after 1 Kings 17 was the, in chapter 16, we have King Ahab building the temple for Baal. And if you recall, when he began to build the temple for Baal, he sacrificed his firstborn son. And when the temple was completed, he sacrificed his youngest son. And then in chapter 17, Elijah shows up. And he declares that there will be no rain in Israel until he until he declares that it is allowed to rain. And he, he indicates when he makes this declaration that this is going to be for years. This is not going to be for a couple days. It's not going to be for a couple months. This is, this is, is going to go on for years. And this begins this conflict between Elijah and King Ahab. Um, God then directs Elijah on where to go. He sends him out and he meets a widow. And, and when Elijah is interacting with her, she's obedient. And God performs a miraculous, um, well, miracle by by using Elijah to provide food for her and her son. And then in chapter 18, we see Elijah face off with the false prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. I think maybe some of you guys would say Carmel, but it's Carmel, just so we're clear. I'm sitting by myself and I think it's funny. Anyways, <clears throat> so he he goes to confront these false prophets and um, King Ahab had been persecuting God's prophets. When Elijah meets with the king, the king calls Elijah the troublemaker. He says that because Elijah was the one who announced that God would stop the rain, that makes Elijah the troublemaker. Um, he, he calls Elijah the troublemaker because Elijah is being obedient to God. And since King Ahab is in rebellion, is being sinful and is wicked, Elijah's righteousness is inconvenient for him. It's troubling him. It's frustrating for him. And it makes it difficult for King Ahab to rule over the people 
because King Ahab won't repent. And yet, from King Ahab's perspective, Elijah's the troublemaker. There's a lesson there. <laughs> because a lot of times, we as Christians, as when we look at the Bible and we see what the Bible says on what we should be doing, and we say that, and there's people in our church that call us troublemakers or that we're being inconvenient or we're troubling them or we're frustrating them or we're being difficult. The way we determine who God views, and that's really what's important here, who the troublemaker is, is by whether they're obeying God or not. And so truly King Ahab is the troublemaker, even though he's the one who's accusing Elijah of that. So a little lesson there, I guess. <laughs> Anyways, so Elijah tells, so he's confronting all these false prophets. There's like 900 false prophets of Baal. Then they serve Jezebel on Mount Carmel. He challenges them in verse uh, 22. He says, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces. Lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you will call upon the name of your God. That's he's saying to the false prophets. You will call to Baal and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. So Elijah is saying that he's going to call on, on the one true God, the God of Israel. And these false prophets are going to call to pale. And we're going to see, who is actually God and sovereign over the physical world, whoever can call down fire from heaven and light this offering. So uh, Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. And it says from morning to noon, the prophets of Baal called out to Baal. They, they set uh, to and, and requesting that he set this offering on fire. Of course, Nothing happens because these false gods can't do anything. They're idols that were created by humans to give us permission to do things that God forbids. And that's why humans create idols. We create idols to give us permission for what our flesh desires. And so they're not real. We just make them up. And, and so... They're not going to be able, they're not, our desires don't have um, any kind of sovereignty over the physical world. So <laughs> what's funny here and probably not acceptable in our modern time, <laughs> but Elijah publicly mocks them and he ridicules them uh, while these false prophets are praying and trying to make their fake God do something, Elijah literally says maybe god is maybe ba i'm sorry maybe baal is just taking time to reflect 
Maybe he's going to the restroom. Maybe he went on vacation or maybe he's asleep. And maybe you should just cry louder so Bale can hear you <laughs> and wake up. And it, <laughs> I just, I love it. <laughs> he says, if you don't believe me on that, you can go and read it. It's in First Kings chapter 18, 27. Now, they're listening to Elijah make fun of them, them. They're praying, and, and you can just picture them with all of their might. They're trying to desire their desires to manifest themselves in this world, and they can't because that's not how it works. And so they decide that they're that, that maybe that their God would listen to them if they self-mutilated. So they start cutting their arms and letting blood come out. And they're saying, this is how committed we are to bail or our desires that we would even cut ourselves so that you would give us what we want. And of course, nothing happens. And so Elijah responds after allowing them to spend most of the day going on with this nonsense, he responds and says, um, at his altar, he wants his servants to build a trench around it. Then they need to put stones around the trench. And then he tells them to pour four jars of water on the altar. Then he tells them to pour four more jars of water on the on the altar and then a third time he says pour four jars of water on the altar so this altar is fully drenched and it says that the trench is filled up and is overflowing with water now i don't know about you guys but after a big long rain if you haven't covered up wood trying to light firewood that's been rained on is incredibly difficult trying to light firewood that has just recently had water poured on it like within minutes is almost impossible i mean you have to have a big strong hot fire for that to really work to get a fire started with all of the firewood drenched like that's just not going to happen yet we see something miraculous happen elijah then prays and God sends down a fire from heaven and it consumes the offering, the altar, the stones, and all the water that was in the trench. Elijah then has all of the men, all of the false prophets put to death. He then tells the king that King Ahab that rain will now come from God. When Jezebel hears what happened to the prophets and the fire, she tries to kill Elijah. Now, Elijah runs. He's on the run. And he becomes very depressed. Um, this is one of those like little nugget stories that I really like in the Bible. Um, because Elijah's done like this great miraculous, or he's witnessed this. He's been part of this. And he was confident. He was bold. He was strong. 
and and then and then he executed God's judgment on these wicked prophets that were murdering children. And yet when he's being persecuted and he leaves and they're pursuing him, he becomes really depressed. He's by himself. He's he's trying to survive. And he actually asks God to kill him. In 1 Kings 19, it says, But he, that's Elijah, himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and laid down again. And the angel of the Lord, remember, this is a Christophany. This is Christ appearing in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord is the messenger of the Lord, or as we translate in the Greek, the word of the Lord, came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of of that food, 40 days, 40 nights to Herob, the Mount of God. And I love that story because you see God see a faithful man and the faithful man's depressed and he's struggling with his life and he wants to die. And yet he has faith in God. He trusts God. And God gives him two naps and some food and water. <laughs> and I just love that because that just feels so fatherly. Like when your children are whining and crying and you and you know, as a father, you know that they just, they just need a nap and a snack. And we see this example right here. I don't know. I just, I love the little story right there. Anyways. Let's get on with some of the more uh, more of the prophets. So Elijah appoints a man named Elisha, and I know that's a little bit hard to remember because some of these stories they're they're both in First Kings and Second. Well, they're both in First Kings, and then Elisha is in Second Kings. Actually, no, they're both found in First Kings and Second Kings. Um. So sometimes it's, some of their stories like intertwine and their names are Elijah and Elisha. So anyways, um, you have Elisha who follows um, Elijah and the story of Elisha becoming the disciple of Elijah is, is kind of cool. You have Elisha was just plowing the fields and Elijah comes up to him and says, follow me similar to the way that Jesus calls all of his disciples and tells them to follow him. And Elisha asked that he would be allowed to return home and finish up some things with his family. Elijah permits him to do that. He sacrifices the oxen, gives it the food away, and then burns up um, his plow and his plowing tools, stopping any chance of him being able to return to the life before he started 
he starts following Elijah. And so he is full hearted, dedicated to following Elijah. And so Elisha follows Elijah until Elijah is taken up at the end of his life. And, um, and they, and Elisha follows Elijah much like a son would follow a father. Their story and their interactions are, um, really interesting reads. Uh, if you want to read through them, their, their stories are between first Kings 19 and second Kings chapter two. Um, but when Elijah passes on the authority to Elisha, he, Elisha asked for double the authority of Elijah. And what's interesting is the author of Kings records seven miracles in Elijah's life and 14 miracles in Elisha's life. Some of the miracles and events in Elisha's life are healing waters, cursing a group of people, and then them immediately dying, um, resurrecting a son, removes poison from food. He feeds a hundred men by multiplying bread and, um, and he heals lepers in second Kings chapter six. We see a story where the enemy of Israel is trying to kill Elisha and his, the enemies are surrounding him. And one of Elisha's servants becomes very afraid and Elisha asked that God would open up the eyes of his servant. And the servant looks out among the hills and sees horses and chariots of fire surrounding them with angels, a multitude of angels all around them. And then Elisha, and, and so the servant sees that and, and his faith grows. And then Elisha asked that God would blind their enemies so that they could escape. God does this and they escape. Ultimately, like Elijah, Elisha does not see the kings of Israel repent. They largely ignore the prophecies and the call towards repentance. And as we know from our last podcast, Israel and Judah continue in unrepentant sin. They continue to get worse and worse eventually leading them to worship idols by killing their children. Not only is this a terrible sin to kill a baby, but they're directly rebelling against God's promise. He promised that he would send a baby that would crush the head of Satan. And and we talked about that in the creation episode. These people have that promise. They have the promise and the, uh, the sign and seal of circumcision so they know they're supposed they know this that, that the promise is coming from their seed and these people the ultimate rebellion is that they're actively trying to destroy the messiah we saw that in egypt with the pharaoh when he tried to kill all the male jewish babies we see that with the baal worshipers where they're killing their first and last male children. And in the future, we're going to see that with King Herod, where they order all the male boys that are under the age of two to be killed. This is the ultimate rebellion against God. And and you can see that throughout the Bible, um, Satan and God's reaction towards children are very, very different. 
One is actively trying to destroy children. And one of them is trying to protect them and to raise them up in the promises that God has for them. Um, but as we've seen, the prophets are continuously telling God's people uh, to repent and turn away from these evil and wicked deeds. Um, after Elisha, we have four prophets. Um, we have Jonah. That's the story with um, the big fish in Nineveh. Amos, Hosea. Hosea is the one that was told to marry a prostitute. And the story of that goes along the lines of that that Hosea is, is kind of an image or an example or symbol for God's love for Israel. And his wife is the prostitute is the example for Israel. And so that was a, an example that Israel could see about what they were doing to God when they were idolatrous and they were, they were prostituting themselves out to their desires instead of God's desires. And then we also have Micah. Then and we have a major prophet, um, Isaiah during this time, which is the prophet that oversees the fall of Israel. And remember, Israel is the northern kingdom. Um, and and remember, the that Isaiah is considered a major prophet because of the size of his book, um, and he prophesies that the exile of Israel would would be an exile of forever; that they would never be restored. He warns Judah not to follow in the footsteps of Israel, and King Hezekiah does not follow in those footsteps. He makes a covenant with Egypt. Isaiah rebukes him and foretells of the fall of Judah for not having faith in God, for trusting in what Hezekiah could do. It was, it was like Hezekiah made a covenant with Egypt. There's a type of covenant of works. He was trying to work out his salvation against um, the king of Assyria, which had destroyed Israel. And he's, and he's trying to work out his own salvation and he seeks out Egypt instead of the one true God and putting faith in God. And so Israel or Judah is now is being told by Isaiah that they will fall. Um, a lot of times we consider Isaiah to be also known as a fifth gospel um, due to the amount of prophecies towards the end of the book that are focused on the coming Messiah, the restoration of Israel, their forgiveness, their salvation, and the new covenant. One of the most common passages is from Isaiah chapter 53. And I'm actually just going to read the whole thing because for those of you that know the New Testament story and you know Jesus and you know that story because that story has been repeated many, many times in your life. When you read through Isaiah chapter 53, you're going to see these things. And if you don't know those stories really well, we're going to be covering them in the next couple episodes. And you're going to see all of these prophecies kind of play out with Christ. And I'll try to remember when I make those, especially the next episode that I tie in this Isaiah chapter 53 in those, so you can see these connections. But I'm going to just read um, Isaiah chapter 53 for you guys. 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. And he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he was born, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears and silent. So he opened not his mouth, but oppression and judgment he has taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That was from Isaiah. That's Isaiah's prophecy of Christ to come. And Isaiah oversees the fall of Israel. He he prophesies of the fall of Judah of Judah and in be after Isaiah and the fall of Israel we have three minor prophets Nahum, Zephaniah and Habakkuk and then we have Jeremiah which is another major prophet because the book is large which is the prophet who oversees the fall of Judah he prophesies of their fall and then also through the exile We also see a lot of passages in Jeremiah about the new covenant. And a lot of times you'll hear in churches today, you'll hear references to Jeremiah chapter 31 
Um, that's a common verse that's or chapter that's quoted a lot of times from the from the New Testament and expounded in the New Testament when it's explaining the new covenant. Um, in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And this is what Jeremiah wrote during um, during the fall of Judah, and and it was you have to think like when the fall of Judah comes, they've rebelled against God, and their city is destroyed. The temple's destroyed. The king is taken out as a prisoner and put in jail. And and yet Jeremiah in this time is talking about there's going to be a time where Israel is restored. That there's going to be a time where there's a Messiah that's going to take on the uh, the transgressions and the iniquities of our people. And that you guys will be forgiven and you will be considered righteous people. And that he will send his Holy Spirit to regenerate your hearts and to cause you to walk in his statutes and follow his law. But this is a miserable time. And that's where we get the book of Lamentations, which a lot of people think Jeremiah wrote, but there's also no indication that Jeremiah wrote the book. Um, inside of the book is just kind of what other people have summarized. Um, but in that book of Lamentations, there it's a whole lament of the fall of Judah and where God's promised people, where they came out of Egypt, they were given the promised land. They were established. They grew in a kingdom. They were looked at as like the jewel of the world and people from all over the world came to Israel to see Israel and how God had blessed them. And now they're being destroyed. Their temple, their walls, their people are being enslaved, and exiled out. And Lamentations is a book all about that destruction and lamenting that. And but in that book, you see a, a slight, sl- uh, a glint. Uh, I don't know what the word is, but like a like a shimmering light goes through clouds, um, in like a dark room or something. Like you see this light of hope that there's there's going to be like God is going to fix this. Like we're, this isn't a punishment of hell forever. This is like a father disciplining his son. And, and that discipline is done out of love because God loves his people and he wants them to obey. And so he gives them their discipline to help them and to encourage them to obey. Um, he, he's being merciful. 
because he could destroy them. They deserve being destroyed. And yet he still preserves them even with their exile. Um, even in their slavery, he still preserves them. Um, and yet we see throughout this whole time, even in the light of all of this, we see that Israel is largely rejecting their prophets. They're rejecting Jeremiah's word. They don't obey Jeremiah. They don't obey any of the prophets, which ends up getting them exiled. And during the exile, God sends them even more prophets. They deserve for God never to talk to them again. And yet God still sends them prophets when they're out being punished. And the prophets during the exile, we see, we see Daniel and Ezekiel. Ezekiel has visions um, that that show that talk about the return of God's people and God going back and establishing a new temple. And then in Daniel, you have you we all know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where these three faithful servants are thrown into a fire and yet they're preserved. Because they would not bow down to idols. And the one true God would preserve them. And then at the end of Daniel, you see a lot of um, end times prophecies. Um, and then and then also you're seeing uh, right now in these prophets, you're seeing even more talk of the new covenant. And something that we would call eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times. So things that are talking about the end of times or when God restores all the world. Um, <clears throat> the two minor prophets during this time are Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah especially focuses on the end times. And it's a great book to read alongside uh, the book of Revelation, which we will explore in the last episode of the Bible Timeline series. Eventually, the Jews from Judah are permitted to return to Judah. This story is recounted in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. Nehemiah is about is from the perspective of the civil magistrate because Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the Persian king Artaxerxes, um, but then he becomes the governor of Judah, and during the return. He's focused on rebuilding the temple and the wall that would surround Judah to protect them from attacks. Um, the book of Ezra is the same story, but Ezra is the high priest who's overseeing the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of temple worship. In these two stories, we see the conflict uh, with uh, the enemies of the Jews trying to reestablish Judah. Uh, they're fighting for peace with Persia. They're drawing people toward and they're drawing people towards repentance. We see Nehemiah threaten to lay hands on people who are breaking the Sabbath. And we see Ezra demanding everyone to remove all things that are foreign from their captivity, even including their foreign wives, that they have to remove them or divorce them and because these things were, this was an extreme sense of, of repentance. When they're being restored, God is blessing them. And their civil magistrate and their religious leaders, 
these two, what you have the government and you have the church, and both of the leaders here are repenting and tor- turning towards God. And so it's with the moral law is being exacted by the civil magistrate. And then you have the, the church, which is Ezra with the temple and the priest reestablishing proper worship and livelihood. So part of that is, would be in this old Testament time would have been to divorce their foreign wives primarily because they were idolatrous. And if you remember, the first place of where all this trouble came from was when Solomon had married foreign wives and they brought in their idolatry and he had established their temples for them. So definitely some, we it, that definitely could be a podcast in itself because it's kind of a unique story there. Um, but they, the people are largely purging themselves of all of these idolatrous um, activities of their lives and it's not easy it's very difficult but you're seeing the people be repentant Um, these are two great books to read back to back maybe even in one sitting they're not super long but and they're very much story type books they're these aren't prophet books these are more like history um Stories there in your Bible, they would be in these um, like history section, not in the prophets. Um, but anyways, this is the story of their return and the reestablishment of the second temple um, because the first one had been destroyed. Um, and the final prophet is the last book of our Bibles. It's Malachi. And this book sets up the stage for Christ's return. Malachi tells the people that God loves Israel, even though their priests are still, still become unfaithful and the people are still unfaithful and that, um, that even after them being disciplined by exile and them being uh, mercifully given return, that there is still rebellion there, um, And that not all of them are like Nehemiah and Ezra, but there's still this fight among the priests and and other governors that they still are rebelling against God. And so Malachi really sets up for them and tells them that they need to repent because the day of the Lord is coming. And the last two verses of Malachi prophesy towards John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Um, In verse 5 of the last chapter of Malachi, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. After this, we have 400 years of silence. And that sums up the Old Testament part of the Bible timeline series. We won't have an episode on the 400 years of silence, though there was a lot of history that happened during that time. And some of it is recorded in books called the Apocrypha, which we don't consider scripture, but um, as being confessionally reformed, we don't 
consider Apocrypha being inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they are worth reading as kind of accompanying scripture uh, or like just like read just like it's helpful to read history books. Uh, reading the Apocrypha is, is helpful in that way. It's not scripture, but it's it is history. Um, it's also got some myth and legends in there, and that's one of one of the reasons we don't consider it scripture. But um, and it was also not really considered scripture during the time of Christ either. That's another reason why the Reformed confessions uh, disagree with it being considered scripture. Um, in the next episode, we're going to start when, with the incarnation of Christ, when Christ becomes flesh, uh, we'll talk about his birth. Well, we'll talk about, we'll talk about the promise with Mary about what's going to happen with John the Baptist and John the Baptist announcing him. We'll talk about his life, his ministry. I really kind of want to get into the map of his ministry of, where he started and where he went through Israel and through Judea and where he ended up in Jerusalem and even where he died and the significance of that. And we want to get into his death, his burial and his resurrection and the, the gospel that he brought the, the good news. And we're going to talk through that. And I really, I can't wait to record that episode. This is going to be a really good one. Um, in the meantime, if you liked this episode, you can give boring theology a shout out on your social media, a five-star review on iTunes. I actually read one the other day and it was very nice. So thank you, Dustin. And remember, likes, hearts, subscribes are always helpful in getting the word out uh, for us to gain some more um, listeners on the podcast. Until next time, God bless you. Oh, thank you.